0: you will get 15% off, not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. This episode is sponsored by Beaver Fit. And as always, this is another company that I've not only been aware of for several years, but I also completely trust and I know is a great fit for this audience. Having not only been a firefighter in my career, but also a strength and conditioning coach, I've seen the challenges that we have getting the tactical athlete fit when it comes to budgets, when it comes to space. And Beaver Fit has solutions for so many of our challenges. When it comes to space, they have the gym box, for example, which is literally the size of a footlocker that when you open it up and build it becomes a squat rack, a pull-up bar, a box and even a ball target, so you can get a full workout for a crew purely on that one box. Expanding out, they have storage containers that become entire gyms. You store everything in the inside, and you can then deploy racks and pull-up bars on the outside. They have gyms on trailers you can take from station to station. They have tactical boxes with breaching props and collapse props. And then on the flip side, the durability is another issue that we see. So often departments buy the low bid, you know, the cheapest they can find. And ultimately, that hard-earned wellness budget gets wasted in equipment that rusts and falls apart. Beaver gear is designed to be used in the most extreme environments, whether it's the deserts of the Middle East or simply on the deck of a naval ship. So they are designed to not only be outside, but to be beaten up by some of the most elite operators on the planet. Now, they are offering you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, 10% off your purchase. So if you go to either the U.S. site, which is graymangear.com, or the U.K. site, which is getbeaverfit.com, use the code BTS10, that's BTS10, and you will get 10% off your purchase. If you want to hear more about this company, and I'm sure you do, Listen to episode four hundred and seventy seven with the original founder Tom Beaver from the UK or the founders of BeaverFit USA, Alex Roodhouse and Mike Taylor on episode four hundred and fifty seven. Welcome to episode four hundred and eighty three of Behind the Shield Podcast. As always my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Tom McClay. Now, Tom has spent his entire career in corrections, working his way up to the superintendent of Powder River Correctional Facility. So we discuss a host of topics from adopting the Norwegian model and trying to make not only more humane prisons, but actually reducing recidivism in the process. We talk about their firefighting program, their addiction counseling program, the impact of COVID on their prison and so much more. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment and go to whichever app you listen to this on. Subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly elevates this podcast, making it easier and easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you pay it forward and share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said... I introduce to you Tom McClay, enjoy. Tom, I just want to start by saying thank you so much for coming on the show. I know we literally just spoke, I think it was, what, three or four days ago, and here we are doing the conversation now. So welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast.
1: Uh, James, thanks for um, having me on the show. I appreciate the opportunity, and I'm excited to be here.
0: So we were connected by Tom Eberhart, and obviously we'll expand on that kind of relationship and the uh, Norwegian versus American prison models, and I'm, I'm looking forward to you know to all of that. So where are people, um, excuse me, let me start again, where are we finding you on planet Earth today?
1: Uh, I'm at uh, Powder River Crescent Facility, it's located in uh, Baker City, Oregon, um, we're a kind of a small uh, rural community here, a uh, population of around 10,000 people. Um, and we run a 316-bed uh, minimum custody facility. And yeah, we're a 128-bed treatment facility on top of that. So out of those 316 bunks, 128 of them are designated for um, alcohol and drug treatment
0: beautiful it's going to be a very unique conversation then um i like to start though at the very beginning chronologically and then we'll work to you know where you are now so tell me where you were born and then tell me a little bit obviously you are you know the uh in charge of a prison so i get there has to be some <laughs> you know um caution when when talking about your earlier life but tell me about your parents what they did and how many siblings
1: uh so uh my parents um we grew up uh i was born in ontario Oregon. um In uh, 72, Um, I lived in Ontario um, for a long time. I think I went through about the third grade there. And then we moved to uh, Hood River, Oregon, um, and uh, went to school there up until um, high school. We moved back to Payette, Idaho. I graduated from Payette High School. And, um, you know, my mom and dad moved back to uh, Ontario here about uh, five years ago. Um, So, I have one brother, um, older, uh, a couple years older than me, actually worked for the Oregon Department of Corrections at Snake River Correctional Institution located in Ontario, Oregon.
0: Um, What about um, sports? Were you an athlete back then? I uh, played football
1: and uh, wrestled.
0: Okay, beautiful. And with the the school age, um, obviously you found yourself in corrections. Was that something that you'd thought about as a young man or was there another profession that you were chasing initially?
1: No, I, uh, as a young person, um, I, uh, wanted to be a, um, a professional, uh, bull rider. So I, you know, dabbled in that through high school and, um, outside of high school, I was a member of the Northwest Professional Rodeo Association. And, um, anyway, uh, life changes and, you know, a lot of injuries and wrecks happen, And so I needed something that had, uh, medical insurance and things. So, um, I went to work at uh, at a mill, a lumber mill located in uh, Fruitland, Idaho, and I worked uh, there for several years. And um, went to work for a distribution company um, located in Fruitland as well. And uh, you know, uh, got married, um, had uh, had my daughter, and was looking for something more of a career, not just a job. And so, um, a lot of friends that I went to high school with were already working at the Snake River Correctional Institution in Ontario. So um, I applied um, for a position, was permanently hired um, there at Snake River in July of 2001. So just coming up on uh, 20 years with the department here in just a few days.
0: Beautiful! Congratulations on the anniversary. Um, with the entry standards, that's always fascinating to me, and all the different you know associated tactical professions. Um, what were the kind of you know ability and fitness requirements when you got hired?
1: Uh, so you had to um, pass the core pat test. Um, you had to run or pass a, a physical fitness endurance test. Uh, back when I was hired, um, we went to. It was kind of I don't. I want to say they called it a stress test and you had to go place, uh, blocks into a certain, um, thing in a certain amount of time. And you had to, uh, like speed and agility type test. And if you, uh, pass that through the uh, employment department, then you were actually submitted on to, um, the interview process, which was a, you know, a panel of, um, folks then. uh, I remember there was uh, some correctional officers and some uh, managers within the uh, correctional series that um, conducted the interviews. And then uh, they sent me a a letter saying that um, if I would accept a position, I accepted it. Um, Went up to the administration building there at Snake River and went through with uh, the human resource uh, person. And um, then I Met with a person from the labor union and kind of did all the paperwork. Um, and uh, I think initially I started um, in NEO class, which is new employee orientation. Um, and we did that for two weeks and then we were brought inside and showed uh, around for a little bit and kind of just started from there. They would assign uh, you um, what they called a shadow officer. So I shadowed with uh, a a seasoned correctional officer for about a week. And then after that, they kind of turned you loose, um, gave you a post, um, assigned you a spot within the institution that was your zone of control. And uh, you had a lot of a lot of questions and a lot of hands-on learning experience back then. Um, and then uh, in December, I went to the academy, which at that time was held um, at uh, Treasure Valley Community College provided by uh, Department of Public Safety and Standards training at um, a Salem DPSST. Um, went to the academy. We graduated. Um, I want to say at the end of, I think January of the next year is when we graduated the academy. And um, yeah, it's been a it's been a great ride <laughs> ever
0: since. Now, what have you seen as far as the evolution of the strength and conditioning, like fitness standards, but also the you know the I guess arrest and control or defensive tactics side too, because we've seen you know an evolution in some departments, a devolution in others when it comes to law enforcement and certainly in, in the fire service too. What have you witnessed through your lens in in the correctional um, environment?
1: Well, I'd say for um, our training, we're um, used to be you know twenty years ago, it was more of um, we had a lot of training as far as um, defensive tactics, and we still do that today, um, but we're more now of communication, um, trying to communicate and have more conversations with our adults in custody Um, where, you know, 20 years ago, it was more of kind of, we give orders and you comply. And if you don't, then, you know, it kind of escalates uh, depending on what, whatever resistance you're met with. And nowadays it's more, um, we still train for defensive tactics and things like that. But I think, the training that we receive now is more geared for how do you de-escalate a situation? Um, and I think that's always been there even 20 years ago, but it wasn't something that was, um, continuously taught and now it's more, Hey, we're in the business of de-escalating situations and, um, trying to remove ourselves from a situation and de-escalate it rather than act on it. Um, so I think a lot of it goes back into, um, like I said, that training, we have a lot of, our training now is in-house. Um, we have the FTO program, which is our, um, basics corrections course, our BCC classes. They're all taught by our current correctional staff, um, within our institutions. So over in the Valley on the West side of the state, some institutions still send their staff to DPSST, but it's taught by our own staff. It's an internal, um, training program that DPSST signed off saying that we met all of their certification requirements, which I feel that the, the training now is, is from a, a correctional lens because um, that's the business that we're in every single day. So we have our staff training our new staff and they're inside our institutions more, uh, whether going through that training, we have a field training officer assigned to them. So it's a lot more hands on training now um, than what it used to be back when I went through and was hired at the department. So I feel our training is really involved into um, more educational and more hands on than what it was before. So you kind of see through that lens now of how to de escalate situations, how, how to interact with the AIC population. Whereas before you, you were, went to the academy, but you never came back inside the institution until. After your, you were completed with your training. And then, and then, honestly, that's kind of when your real training began because uh, you figured out how to operate within um, the rules, the policies, and procedures that you learned about in training, but you hadn't had the opportunity to uh, put those into implementation because you were outside and removed going through the training.
0: Brilliant. Well, I know that, you know, we're going to talk a lot about, you know, the MM program and the Norwegian model and, you know, Tom from Bastoy, who's been on this, this show and, and Brandon, um, from Oregon State. But, you know, I, I'm again, completely removed from law enforcement, completely removed from corrections. I'm a, you know, a lowly firefighter, but you know, we see the ripple effects of this addiction, violence, all these things as a, as a paramedic, especially. And so, you know, as a responder, I feel like we get to see behind the curtain, which probably 99% of the community just doesn't. Um, and so when I start seeing success whether it's overseas whether it's in different parts of this country you know these stories need to be told and understanding the kind of lock someone in a cell um you know mentality the philadelphia model uh you know has roots from centuries ago and and you know has not really shifted in in a lot of the you know the, the areas around the world um you know i'm always intrigued that the people that do stand up and, and want to change? Do you want to, want to try something more proactive? So walk me through, you know, your initial impression of corrections when you were a young officer and then how you, you know, yourself started to evolve to, you know, realizing that there might be some other models that may be more effective being used in different places around the world.
1: All right. so when I, I remember my first, uh, my first trip down inside, um, snake river correctional institution i was a brand new hire never been inside the the institution yet and we left that administration building we we're going to go on a tour inside and uh snake river um, is our largest uh, institution in the state um it houses around three thousand AICs. aic's um, well there's a long corridor when you enter into the facility and you walk down to what they call the t-desk and um i remember hearing over like a pa system that they said line movement I had no idea. Me and the the six other staff that were just hired, we had no idea what a line movement meant. And the next thing, this stuff, the hallway, it just started filling up with um, adults in custody. and You know, you're just kind of like, wow, where, where where is everybody? You know what I mean? Where's all of our, our the staff? Um, and it was just kind of a, an eye-opening experience to go, wow, there's, there's a large mass movement. It was like, it's a city within a city. So there was a lot of AIC movement. Um, And then, so that first initial thing was like, I don't know if I'm set up for this. I mean, what, this is completely out of the norm, you know? Um, but once you, once we got into kind of the, the scenario, um, you just realized that that was just, it was the way we did business. Um, and I would say, uh, kind of nowadays that, 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 that has really changed, um, the, the pendulum is really you know kind of swung the other way where we're more, um, we still have the mass movements. Um, none of that has changed, but you kind of come accustomed to what that looks like every single day. It's not like what you see on TV. Um, you know, the the Shawshank Redemptions or some of those other shows that y- you may associate with um, you know, prison life, whether you work inside or whether you live inside, what that's actually like. They're basically, a city within inside of a city. Um, We have all of our own medical staff. Um, We have uh, large kitchens that feed, you know, like some of our larger institutions, you know, up to, you know, 3,000 meals at one time. You know, when you times that by three meals a day. Um, Anyway, so it's a city within a city. We have our own physical plant. Um, So you've got everything that you have outside of the, in our communities, right inside this this one work area. Um, and so what, um, what are the other questions
0: that were associated with that? Oh, it's okay. No problem. It was kind of a, a broad one. So that, that was your initial impression. Um, you know, we had this model of someone's arrested, you know, they're, they're locked in a cell. And then, you know, conversely, we hear about Bastoy in Norway where prisoners are living in houses and being educated and, you know, and, and you, it, what appears to be a very successful, um, way of doing things because there's you know, a fraction of the violence that we see here, you know, inmate and inmate and, or oh, excuse me, adult in custody to adult in custody or, or on the, the officers themselves. Um, and so, you know, you, you start looking at, as a regular person, like, well, if I was locked in a cell or let's say take these last 12 months, if I was locked in my house, you know, how would I feel? And we're, we're seeing just a little, you know, snap of that for a lot of people themselves. So when, were there any aha moments where you realized that, that maybe the way that we used to do it for a long long time in, in corrections maybe there was a more progressive way of doing it?
1: Yeah, I would say it was the first that that aha moment was um, you know when our um, when our director uh, miss Peters um, and uh, mr. Pearson uh, miss Stewart had went over to Norway and had came back and had all these these great ideas and got to see the Norwegian prison system and kind of shared that information with um, the leadership team um, about what they experienced over there and kind of how that Norwegian, the prison system worked over there. And, um, you know, quite frankly, honestly, you know, coming from 20 years of, you know, doing business a certain way. And like I said, we, I think Oregon is, is progressively gotten, um, more and more into the customer service business with our AICS, rather than you know, kind of hey, it's the rules we we say what they are and follow them where there's consequences. But when we started talking about you know, what hey, their their AICS live in in a in a kind of a like a college dorm setting. Uh, they cook their own meals depending on what institution they're at, and they kind of they got free free reign kind of sort, and they have you know, the one-to-one staffing ratio was the biggest thing. I'm like, how do, how can they have a one-to-one staffing ratio? I mean, how, how do they afford to do that for one? And, you know, how do they get the staff to come to work for them? I mean, so there was a lot of questions um, that me and myself personally had about how does that even, how does that look? I mean, I couldn't even fathom what that would even look like um, compared to our Oregon system and, you know, how many AICs per staffing level that we have. And then, you know, all of the our housing situation is all um, cells or dorm type settings where they don't have like their individual uh, cubicles that they live in. So, a huge, huge kind of cor- culture shock on to see that 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 even existed somewhere in the world like that, and to find out how successful what they're doing actually is. You know, the lowest recidivism rate um, ever. It's like. Holy cow! I want to. I want to be on that type of a scenario where, um, you know, our staff assaults. We don't. We won't have those types of scenarios. I mean, obviously, there's still always going to be that threat and have those incidences, but not not to the extreme um, that other prison systems see. You know, so um, for me, that was the biggest thing. It was just like kind of stepping back and going, is that even possible? How does that work? Um and then so we started gaining more and more information um from the Norwegian uh prison system on how that works and everything it and we started taking tools from them. It's it's really uh enlightening and really refreshing to see um, us putting those practices to work and actually um starting to see the benefits. I mean the proven data that um the way that we're we're managing our prisons now, um, kind of under that Norwegian model, and we call it the Oregon Way. It's, uh, it's really helped with our, our staff wellness, um, our AIC population, um, you know, our reduction in our special housing, um, our staff assaults are down. So there's a lot of good things um, that we've taken from, from that uh, prison system that we've implemented in Oregon, and we're starting to see the fruits of that labor.
0: Beautiful. Well, special housing, you mentioned on that, would that be what the, the average person would think of as solitary, for example?
1: Yeah, you would, yeah, or if you wanted to uh, compare it to anything, that that would be the the solitary confinement um, type. Our disciplinary Segregation Unit, and that's our um, place that, um, through an AIC's actions, they go through a disciplinary hearing process and they're removed from general population placed into disciplinary segregation based on their own actions. Um, and that's, the first place that we really started looking at that on how how can we reduce um, the a lot of studies you know um, out there and information out there uh, pertaining to um, an individual that is isolated and doesn't have um, interactions other than you know hey you want to sign up for a rec and shower you know what do you what do you want for your meal and things like that or you you come out to see the um, health care providers but other than that um, it was a time where you. Um, where you you did your sanction for um, not following the rules set forth for the AICs out in general population. So looking at that, and through our um, internal hearings department, and um, all the studies and research about it with the BERA um, the project, and um, coming to the determination that long term solitary confinement and long term disciplinary segregation is unhealthy, um, and then turning the lens on. On that aspect, to say how do we how do we reduce these sanctions um, or be more inclusive and have what kind of programs are we offering in our special housing? You know, how much out of cell time are we providing the adults in custody? What kind of interactions are they having? Um, so, uh, took all that information, and um, obviously we've got a lot more tools in our toolbox now as far as um, how to hold the AICs accountable. Um, different sell-in type options where we keep them out in general population, Um, but they're just restricted from some of the privileges that the um, other AICs that are under um, a conduct order is what we call them. Um,
0: Yeah, it's it's really interesting. Now, from the outside, again, looking in – there's a couple of topics that I talk about a lot, you know, after talking to Tom, you know, I, I shout from the rooftops about, you know, the Norwegian model. And then obviously with Brandon and now you, we're getting add to this, this story, this landscape. Um, but the, the, the fact that the way we, you know, the way we are as far as law enforcement, where we are as far as, um, the prison systems, you know, I think in 1970, we had what 350,000 prisoners in the U.S. And now it sits at about 2.2 million. So, For the average person, that seems like it's it's a it's a you know uh, we try that way and it's not working very well. And I also talk a lot about prohibition of drugs, which I think creates a lot of you know people that that find themselves on the wrong side of the tracks, as it were. Um, So with that, as as this Norwegian model is starting to find its way into some of the prisons in the U.S. What are you seeing as far as numbers in your own recidivism, for example? Are are you in that one, you know, your one um, prison or correctional facility, starting to see numbers come down rather than keep rising?
1: I would say that our recidivism rate um, is maintaining. It does not I know it's not on the on the incline. So right now it's really tough because we've been under this the COVID ever everybody's been locked down on COVID. You know, our court systems are bogged down um, and everything. We're, so it's, it's kind of hard to tell right now within the last, you know, what are we about 16 months into the COVID. So the last almost year and a half games, it's really hard to tell what, what that's going to look like because I know that um, just out in our communities uh, with like i said the the bog down of the court system and our our jails and everything um looking at other alternatives um rather than you know housing people um and jails and things like that due to covid it, it's really kind of the i think the numbers are kind of skewed right now because we don't really know what that's going to look like we don't know if we're going to get a big influx um when the covid restrictions really start lifting and then uh you know, a lot of commutations through the state um, that the governor's done. Uh, really hard to tell, but I can tell you this, just looking through my own lens right here, at, at just Powder River specific, um, you know, we, we've taken off um, some of our emergency beds offline um, and, you know, our population at Powder River is is down for, you know, today we're sitting at 270 AICs and our max capacity is 316. So, um, a year ago at this time, we were hovering right around um, that 350 range. Um, and like I said, we've taken some e-beds offline, which has lowered our general population, our maximum uh, housing capacity. So I know within the last year, um, we, even within the state, we're 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 down um, a lot of AICS in our population. Um, I say it, a lot of it has to do with with COVID, but I think a lot of it has to do with um, the implementation of all all the changes that we've made with the Oregon way um, and how we're treating our AIC population and the programs that we're offering them. So I, I think it's all inclusive. I mean, there's a lot of factors that play into it, but I know we're doing um, a lot of the right things for all the right reasons.
0: Absolutely. Well, you mentioned as well, having, you know, a series of beds that were for addiction, it, um, AICs with addiction. Um through my lens, through the firefighter paramedic lens, I see, as I mentioned, the ripple effect of, you know, the prohibition of drugs and how that, in my opinion, creates a lot of violence, a lot of crime, um, as well as obviously overdoses and all those horrendous deaths from, from that side too. Um, what are you seeing as far as just addiction in general in prisons and what are some of the progressive ways that you're trying to address that in, in your particular facility?
1: Uh, So, yeah, like I said, we've we've got 128 beds here at uh, Powder River. They're designated designated our treatment beds. Um, We we employ 22 uh, contractors that provide that drug and alcohol treatment. Um, By the way of New Directions Northwest is the um, company that we contract that provides that treatment to the AIC population here. So um, it's a a 16-hour-a-day structured activity that these AICs, um, they don't interact um, with our general population because they're, like I said, it's a 16-hour structured day of um, drug and alcohol treatment. Um, Yeah, the the AICs are assigned a a treatment counselor. Uh, They meet with them, they go over a case plan and what that looks like for them. And then they they have uh, group discussions, one-on-one discussions, and they have kind of a... um, a case plan that they work with that AIC, they identify goals for them to reach. Um, and you know, they talk about their addiction they talk about their, their, um, struggles and what they're going to do to keep themselves, uh, from being that reoffender and coming back to, um, the prison system. Uh, they try to create a really good structure for them, um, and breaking down those, uh, it's kind of like an onion. You peel back an onion layer by layer. And by the, the end of, uh, the program, you know, we see guys uh, all the time that, uh, that are out there and they make success. And uh, if every week, um, multiple times a week, we get um, a communication from an XAIC that reaches back out to their treatment counselor to say, hey, and they just give out, and it's not required, but they give us reports out on what they're doing. Hey, I've got a job. Hey, I'm, I'm you know, 180 days clear. I've been doing great. Hey, I've been out for three years and this is what I'm doing. So, a, and those are all those real good feel-good moments. Um, unfortunately, those aren't always the cases. You know, sometimes we'll have a guy go out and then we, you know, find out, you know, three months down the road that they're, they're coming back in uh, for, you know, a reoffense. Uh, but we have a really good success rate um, by folks that go through our treatment. And um, it's, uh, it's really enjoyable to see those guys when they go through and they graduate the, the program and we attend the graduations, and you can really see the, the change in a lot of them, um, that they're, they're really committed, and they're gonna take the, um, the guidance and the education that they got from that treatment program, and they're gonna go out there and implement it. And like I said, we get those, those feel-good moments um, every week uh, where an AIC, an ex-AIC has reached back out to the institution and provide us a, a feel-good story of what they're doing out there, those little moments of success.
0: Yeah, see, that's really important to hear because I know here in Florida, if I'm not mistaken, some of those, um, incentives have been cut. They've removed some of the, the drug treatment programs. Um, just again, I'm not putting you on the spot. I know the position that you're holding right now. Me personally, I truly believe that addiction is a mental health issue. And the moment that we made it a crime, addiction, not selling, not smuggling, but addiction specifically, the moment we made it a crime, I think we compounded the problem that we're seeing today, that law enforcement are facing, that we're seeing with the swelling of the prison system. Um, you are in a state that has be, has, has begun some progressive initiatives on decriminalizing, um, uh you know some of some of the addiction elements i've i've had sat down with um jao goulao who's the man who spearheaded portugal's decriminalization which had huge success um w- do you have a stance on on addressing prohibition to stop sending addicts to prison or 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 empowering you know the the criminals of the world rather than putting the power back in the medical community when it comes to mental health and addiction
1: you know i for I guess my own personal view on it is that uh, anything we can do to to help um, the addiction process um, in our communities before it comes uh, to the prison setting, I think that we we should be doing that. We should be providing those services um, to the members of our communities um, to try to keep them out of the prison system. Um, and if that if that can be done, I I fully support that because. What happens is when we we get those individuals um, that are truly addicts um, and we get them in our institutions, Um, you know, from the from the court system, uh, sometimes right into our prison system. Some of those folks are still detoxing um, and, you know, they they're under the influence for, you know, X amount of years or X amount of time that they've been, you know, uh, chemically induced that. When they come to our institutions, um, you know, sometimes it's it, it, it's not the best treatment for them. Um, I would agree with that hundred percent. And anything that we can do out in our communities um, to change uh, some of those things and provide more treatment, it, it's beneficial to everybody.
0: Beautiful. I appreciate your perspective. Thank you. Um, so before we move on to the, uh, wildland firefighter program, which is obviously the reason we connected initially, um, one more area. So Tom talked about Bastoy in Norway. Bastoy is a, an island just off Oslo and the prisoners range from, you know, more minor crimes all the way through to some pretty violent crimes and murders. And they all live in houses and they cook and they clean and they work and they go to school and their philosophy is these men and women one day are going to move back next door to you and your family. so why would you not want to create the best version of them and then what I think is less acknowledged is that also the guards not only are they safer but they're not in prison either. you know they're not in in a concrete building, they're outside and they're they're working alongside these men and women. Um, you know, so their quality of life appears to be so much better than I would imagine, you know, life in a, in a high security prison, for example, would be. Um, so I'm assuming there wasn't a complete, you know, adoption of everything they do in Bastoy. So what were some of the things that you were able to change in your facility using that model?
1: So uh, the facility that I work at, I'm, I'm I'm truly blessed. And I think all the staff here um, would feel the same way because... We're, uh, we're a small minimum institution, and we are set up like, um, kind of like a campus college dorm type setting. Um, we don't have individual cells here um, they are large dorm areas. And every housing unit, unless an AIC is assigned to a work or a programming assignment, they have free access to go to the recreation yard, which is um, inside the facility, uh, which all connecting doors you walk outside of your housing unit you're automatically on the yard. So we have uh, picnic tables on, um, our yard. We have uh, mature landscape and trees on our yard. Um, so it's a different powder river. Um, and some of our other institutions in the state of Oregon are just by design. You're already kind of set up that way. Um, so I'm just, I'm blessed to, to be here because we, we have a lot of those features, um, that some of the like like uh, the Norwegian business system have as far as uh, the different colors and adding landscaping and plants and we have a, a garden here that the AICs uh, grow um, a lot of produce in. They're out working in the garden every day. So um, we've got um, the the flower. I'm not sure what they're called. <laughs> the people that do the flowers. Uh, no,
0: know the the, the florists. Yeah, there you go, florists. <laughs> my
1: excuse my ignorance on that, but yeah, we have AIC florists that—that's their job. Um, they take care of all of the plants within the institution, and if they see one that's not doing well, they change it out and they put a different one in, and they take that one back to the greenhouse and they—they would, they, um, you know, do their florist job on it and, and make it healthy. And so we and all of our uh, our AICs that work like within our physical plant, um, they're assigned a work order and they they take their tools and they go. Uh, throughout the institution and they they conduct the work that needs to be done so we're we're on a different entity than some of our other institutions are um, one by design and for two we're we're a minimum custody um institution and and we're one of the smallest uh standalone minimums in the state so just very blessed and you know coming from the largest institution in the state where i worked for 16 years um which is um, a lot of double fences and a lot of concrete and individual cells with, with, uh, you know, some bars and things like that, crash gates, uh, all controlled movement with, um, you know, all staff controlling all the AIC movement and things like that to come to this institution um, was a huge culture shock in itself. Uh, you know, you you talk about um, the hypervigilance that, um, you know, Every, think anybody in any type of law enforcement uh, the big blanket of any of law enforcement agencies firefighters things like that that um, have that hyper vigilance that when I first came to Powder River every time I hear the radio key up I was um, always kind of expecting hey we need a response team to a certain location because we have some type of an incident going on um, it took me about three months before the the keying up the radio didn't triggered in my head that, oh, there's going to be, we're initiating ICS right now because we have some type of an incident that result, you know, it's going to result in staff responding to a certain area um, where the radio keys up and they're just, they're talking about, hey, I need gate three open or whatever scenario that is. So that was a kind of a culture shock um, to come from, you know, our largest institution um, to one of our smallest and coming from the medium to a minimum. And like I said, we're truly blessed here. We're right at the base of the, the um, Eagle Cap Mountains and the Elkhorns on one side and the Eagle Caps on the other. And um, that's our that's our view from anywhere in the institution. You walk outside and you're surrounded by, um, you know, the forest really, the, the mountains and the clear blue skies. And anyway, so I think for a lot of the AICs that even come here from other institutions, um, they they're appreciative of wanting to be here. For one, they're here for a treatment program, um, and two, they're they just like the um, the freedom that, that they're provided here. Um, and you know, a lot of the programs that we provide to AICS here, and knowing that if they're not on a structured call out or um, a work assignment, they're they're free to go to the recreation or and lift weights or work out or just lay out in the in the sun. Um, and you know, they access to, um, you know, the video calls and things like that that are a lot more accessible just be- based on design. So it's a, it's a win-win for both the AIC population because they, they appreciate being here um, and uh, the freedom that they have. And on the staff side of it, we all appreciate being here just because of the, the natural environment that we're allowed to work in, especially if we, any of us have worked at any of the larger or different institutions in the state.
0: Beautiful. Yeah. Well I think we all had a an experience as I mentioned earlier about losing autonomy. And you, know, you think about you know, someone who's committed a crime, of course, there has to be a, a loss of freedom meaning you can't leave the place that you're sent to. But I think it appears to me from, you know, what the, the Norwegian model does is it still gives people autonomy within, within that structure. Yet when you are literally lined up and told to get into a cell and stay there for 23 hours, you know, whatever it is, um, I think a lot of us now realize that when we're told we can't do what we want to do, it mentally, it's not, it's not very good. It doesn't make you want to grow. It makes you frustrated and angry. Um, and I can see how that would be the, you know, a, a parallel within prisons themselves. Now, as you mentioned, you were somewhat set up already, which is a beautiful thing, to start kind of mirroring what they were doing over there. How do prisons that are set up like your previous one start to adopt some of the Norwegian principles when they are in that building at the moment?
1: Yeah, so I know that um, some of the larger institutions in the state, um, they started first identifying um, our special housing um, and what what we could do for the AICs down there, obviously, for more out-of-cell time and getting more of that um, interaction where they weren't um, spending so much time in their cells. So they they addressed and worked on that uh, where they have, a, you know, on-site uh, classroom set up where they get a lot more um, outside cell time. Um, they have uh, buddy wrecks um, where they're allowed to go out with a, a another – AIC to where they can attend the rec yard. So they've got that, that type of interaction. Um, they worked on some of our higher profile AICs that had spent, um, you know, multiple years down in special housing, uh, just because they were such a secure, um, a security threat, um, not only to themselves and other AICs, but to our staff, they started what they, uh, identified as, uh, the, um, special housing, um, kind of AIC, uh, communication team where they had certain staff that had a good rapport with those AICs that way they would talk with them and they started taking them out. Um, first in special housing where they kind of get accustomed to just being around people um and having normal conversations, but taking them out um into other areas of the institution while the institution was uh you know on a modified operations for count time where everybody's locked down. They take them over to one of the gymnasiums and let them play basketball and would take them out to the yard and where they've got a lot more freedom rather than the, the small recreation yards and special housing. So that was one of the, some of the first things that they did. And then over at um, the Oregon State Penitentiary and the, the behavioral health unit, um, they started really looking at some of those high profile AICs uh, and just trying things a different way, having more conversations and allowing the, the AICs to come out of their, come out of their cells and participate um, with the staff, uh, drawings, um, just having normal conversations, sitting down and eating with them, uh, things like that. And that's some of the first things that that um, our larger institutions started doing. Um, they started uh, with the, their own uh, contact officer programs and the resource officers that they had down to special housing. And just through those conversations and briefings with the staff and educating them on, you know, the benefits of, having a good relationship with the AIC population, and um, that that was beneficial to the staff because um, we've already seen our number of, like I said, mentioned earlier, our number of staff assaults are down, our number of AIC assaults are down. Um, and it's it just makes a better place to work um, and a better place for the AICs to live. Um, you know, those are types of things, they, they um, have an AIC band at Snake River that plays um, over at staff Dining. Um, just a lot of things They started adding uh, murals and a lot of colors and um, changing things in a special housing out in general population, they started adding trees and landscaping items um, to different areas of the institutions uh, that the AICs have access to. So just trying to those low level type things of uh, normalization and humanization items that we all take for granted, it's um, the AICs that came back and told us how much they appreciate this. those little things like that, um, that really changes when they're out on the yard. Yeah. They're, they, they can see trees now. Um, they've got flowers planted where before it was, uh, even though the, um, the structure of the institution is still there that hasn't changed. It's just when you add those little things like that, um, having, um, you know, plants inside your housing unit where, you know, you're sitting there in the day room and the guys can look over and just see just a plant, um. That that's a huge thing. Um, it kind of takes you gives you a moment, to, you know, remove yourself from whatever scenario you're in. So, and it's refreshing for the staff as well. Uh, like I said, you had a little little color and you know some some plants and some trees and some picnic benches and things like that, and it it really does change um, the perception uh, while you're inside doing your daily job.
0: Yeah. And I think, and even again, something that people realize at daylight, sadly, some people believe that they shouldn't go outside this last year, which was the worst advice of the entire COVID, you know, crisis. But, um, yeah, I mean, you think about not only, uh, correctional officers, but also you know, doctors and nurses, so many professions, especially if they work shifts that don't get to see daylight. And, you know, I can imagine that in itself is, is, a huge positive wellness improvement for the correction officers themselves and the prisoners to actually have access to outside, to be able to get daylight and fresh air during the day.
1: Yeah, 100%. Yeah.
0: Well, another thing that you know, I I try and share when I see it, and and it happens a lot. I'm just probably just not caught on camera very much, but I've seen you know prisoners save guards from choking. I've seen prisoners save guards that have had a heart attack. I've just saw one recently where prisoners used Narcan on another prisoner and saved them from an opioid overdose. Of course there are some people incarcerated that need to never be let out again you know there's 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 people that uh, prey on children you know in norway they had that mass shooting obviously that person's never going to see the light of day again but you know to me there's such a great opportunity we probably have so many amazing doctors nurses lawyers authors you know whatever that are incarcerated at the moment you know firefighters police officers um, so it's an amazing opportunity to educate and, and lift up. And the more I've done this podcast, the more I realize how some people just have a really awful childhood and some people find mentorship and find their way out of it. And some people obviously go the opposite way. So I saw recently, um, uh, with that, when I, when I posted that Narcan, people were talking about they should teach um cpr in prisons so as far as education what are some of the the incentives that you've seen um educationally that have forged paths for people once they walk out the door which we we hear can be pretty traumatic for for aics that will empower them to be able to 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 stay on the the new path the good path as opposed to find their way back in you know maybe company they had before they got caught
1: Well, yeah, for us, um, we do teach um, CPR to our AICs, um, depending on work, you know, kind of what work assignment that they're in. Um, Like if they're assigned to our fire crew, they all go through a CPR class. They're all trained. If they're on a a work group program, they all um, get those accreditations with the CPR and they go through that training. Um, But you know, we offer um, for Powder River. We we do um, our GED, so we we partner with uh, got a contract with Blue Mountain Community College. we have uh, mr greg jones that comes in and provides our um general education um and that's a huge success here uh, we have multiple aic's every month um they go through that um that program and we have a big graduation ceremony for them and obviously our treatment um that we have um so a lot of different programs um some of the other institutions they they offer a variety of um like a a welding or electrician apprenticeship program. Unfortunately for Powder River, since we're so small, um, our our average um, stay of, a, of an AIC um, at Powder River is like 254 days. So we don't even have them a year before they release out in their communities, like you mentioned earlier, um, to be our neighbors or to be a family member's neighbor or a friend's neighbor. Um, and so this is our last chance to try to really um, touch on them and try to change their lives so they, they go out there and they, they try to do um, something positive and be a, um, a uh, providing member of society. So um, our GED program is something that we offer here. Um, we have, you know, obviously multiple jobs within the institution. Um, we have a, what we call a Get Life Right uh, program that we're just now implementing. It's an AIC uh facilitated and driven uh, program. is is talking about um, how to get your life right. Um, we have a lot of uh, XAICs that um, we allow to either call into the institution and be like a, a guest speaker and they tell their success stories um, to the AIC population that's going through the treatment. So we try to incorporate uh, as many um, XAICs as we can to um, tell their success stories because that really helps motivate um, the AIC population that we have now to take the the treatment or the education opportunities uh, very seriously and do the best job that they possibly can so they can go out there and be successful. Um, we we do a lot of with our treatment program. We have a lot of AIC mentors within that. That when our treatment folks um, you know take off after after the day um, they continue on with that structured. Um, programming and we have the AIC mentors that oversee that. So um, you know with our GED program, um, that's one of the huge things that that we offer here. Um, and uh, some of our like our wildland firefighting uh, program, um, our work group uh, programs, um, physical plant jobs where um, they work out in our physical plant. Um, and they're the, the workers that basically help keep the institution running. And we have our food services um, division, our greenhouse. Um, we have, uh, a, a dog program here. It's, uh, powder palace. It's, uh, new hope. Um, Mr. Uh, Dick Haynes is a, a contractor and a volunteer for the institution Provides uh, sheltered dogs that, that need training. And he provides that structured training to the IC population. Um, and they go through this, uh, structured program to be, uh, dog trainers. And then, uh, we place those dogs um, back out into the, the community um, as uh, recovery um, animals that were, you know, unfortunately uh, probably going to be euthanized if they weren't given the opportunity. And so, some of those types of programs is, is what we're able to offer to the AIC population. And like I said before, with the, the limited stay, this is we are more focusing on um, the rehabilitation uh, piece of it um, rather than. Kind of the life skills that we're hopefully that they learn some of those that are larger institutions through some of those apprentice programs. Um.
0: Beautiful. Well, um, I had a guest who was a um, an AIC in California, and she entered the wildland program and ended up working for Cal Fire for her career. Um, I've had other wildland firefighters that have worked alongside crews, you know, in my crews that have done nothing but praise them. So tell me about the, you know, the inception of that program in, in your prison, how you select, you know, how people earn the the right to be on that crew and then kind of what the training looks like from that lens.
1: Okay. So, yeah, we have uh, we have nine institutions in the state that participate in the, the wildland um, firefighting program uh, at our various institutions. So I'll speak specifically to Powder River. Um, so we've got... Uh, uh, and we enter into contracts with the uh, Oregon Department of Forestry. And for Powder River, we provide one suppression crew, which is a 10-man ten, ten, uh, crew, an AIC crew, um, that are trained um, for suppression. And then we have a, a camp support crew. Typically, we try to get 30 AICs involved in that program. And uh, what we do is our, our in, in AIC work programs coordinator, um, Starts uh, sending out uh, letters of application or letters of interest type things uh, in our AIC newsletter that goes out every week to the population. So they're notified that, hey, we've got our wildland fire uh, crew program coming up and if the, we, we seek volunteers for it. They gotta meet uh, obviously some criteria. They gotta be outside cleared. Um, you know, obviously they're a score minimum custody because they're a minimum institution. They gotta be gate cleared. Um, we like to have them out there with uh we review their misconduct history review um any uh stir reports which is our intel um reporting system they have to go through a an initial screening process with our health services staff they review their records um and they, they just provide feedback on whether or not um, they would be cleared at that aspect and then once we have the the AICs selected um, to go through the the training we uh, schedule with ODF. They come in and they provide um, a week of uh, wildland fire training from them uh, from everything from our CPR training that that we provide to the AICs. They got to pass an initial pack test before they're even you know a lot of things go into it. For they got to with pass the um, the screening process for from our security folks. They got to. Pass it from our our counselors and our professional rehabilitation. Then it goes into our medical field. Then they've got to pass um, a physical fitness endurance test, um, which is a pack test, which basically relates to they got to pack a 40-pound pack on their their back um, in a mile um, under a certain amount of time. Um, They meet all that criteria, um, and then we have a conversation with them locally to talk about um, what kind of conduct is expected of them whether out on the fire and what kind of conduct they're um, expected to have within the institution? You got to you got to maintain conduct, uh, clear conduct, um, in order to be um, considered and remain in good standing um, to participate in that. And then they go through the the ODF training, which is provided by our, our Department of Forestry. And uh, then they they go out and certain AICs are selected for our our sawyer training where they're trained to use the chainsaw. Um, they dig a fire line um, you know they know how to use the the um, shelter blankets uh that if they're caught out in a hot spot that they're um provided with all the gear they're fitted with the nomax fire attire um the um, ansi rated fire crew rated uh boots and you know it's a when the AICs are selected and they go through that, you can tell they they hold their head a little higher. They walk around a little prouder within the institution because they're they there's somebody that's going to be going out in the community. And like you said, they work side by side with, uh, with all the contractors out there. They're a representative of the department of corrections when they're out there. So myself, I always attend the, the, the briefings before they, during the, the fire training, um, kind of lay out some clear expectations for them. But Hey, you know what, you're, you're, um, you're incarcerated, but you're going to be going out there in the community. You want to represent the department and yourself in a positive fashion, you know? So, and, you know, they really do hold their selves selves in a higher regard. Um, Once they get out there and they're interacting with, uh, with the contractors and with ODF and with BLM and all the different fire entities that could be on a fire, a multi-agency fire out there, um, they're, working side by side if they're on the suppression if they're up on the hill, uh, working side by side with the firefighters, putting out the little hot hotspots. Um, and so they're, they're, they're really held in a high regard um, and they, they really take it seriously. They enjoy being out there. Um, we get a lot of praise. I was just up in uh, Enterprise, Oregon uh, a couple of weeks ago. I went up, we had a, a camp support crew that was called out from Powder River. Um, we had two staff and 10 AICs that were deployed up to that fire. And uh, there was two fires burning up on the canyon, uh, one that was, uh, I think they contained it right at about 1,600 acres, and another one was about 800 acres. But um, our, our AICs and our staff were just doing camp support. They were unloading um, all of those, the supply trucks as they came in. Uh, they were preparing all the all the sack lunches for um, all the the firefighters that were going up on the fire line. They, they did everything within the camp itself uh, as far as uh, litter patrol, trash patrol, cleaning of the, the facilities, um, you know, shoveling things uh, at that camp uh, from one area to the other. And um, the, it was held, uh, the camp was actually set up at the uh, enterprise fairgrounds at the rodeo grounds um, there. And uh, when uh, me and one of the lieutenants, Lieutenant Clark went up to visit the, um, the campsite, uh, the camp host was very appreciative of the AICs. Um, you know, when they got there, um, the camp commander gave out specific instructions to um, our two correctional staff into the AICs. And uh, when we went up there, it was on, I think, uh, day three or day four of that deployment. The camp host had nothing but great things to say uh, about the staff and the AICs. And actually, it was it understood that um, those deployments come from um, our our south um uh, command center uh institution over on the west side it's our odf calls in for a resource um and south Fork makes a notification to whatever institution is kind of the closest that meets the criteria for that deployment and uh but with that camp host knowing that we don't um that they just can't call whatever like powder river and request our crew she was like I'd like to take your crew all summer. I'd like to just keep this, this crew all summer um, because they've just been phenomenal. So it's the, you know, the AICs hear that, you know, they, they get that constant reinforcement from those outside indians, Um, like I said, and they're working side by side with them. Um, it's just, uh, it's really um, refreshing and enlightening. It makes you, gives you a real good feel, good feeling when you go up there and the AICs, the adult's, of you're so happy and so appreciative to be out there that, they're just on point, you know. Like I said, they're they're walking a little taller and, you know, holding their heads a little higher just because they're out in the community and they're in that 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 light like that. But they don't at that given time that they don't they don't feel incarcerated. They feel that they are out there and they're they're contributing. They're doing something um, that they signed up for, and they're really excited to be out there. So that is really really cool to see.
0: Yeah, another thing that has been a common denominator in in you know, mental health and healing is the ability to give back the altruistic element. And it seems like, you know, even if you are, as you mentioned, you know, um, in the kitchen, in, in a correctional facility, you're not going to have that same feeling, but when you're doing something like the, the wildland deployments, there's got to be a healing element for them too. aside from, from a little bit more autonomy about being in the outdoors, but also knowing that you're actually making the world a little better.
1: No, a hundred percent. You know, these guys, when they um, when they complete that that program, they're they're if they go through the suppression training and they're um, go through the Sawyer stuff and things like that, they get a they get a certificate um, that they they get to take out there and um, present that or present that uh, when they're trying to get um, employment opportunities with uh, some of the contract fire departments or. With uh, ODF or um, BLM type scenarios, um, I know that there's multiple um, a- XAICs that that currently do that. They're on those firefighting crews and um, out there, and they they travel around. You know, they were fighting fires in California and Oregon. XAICs. And we had a bunch of AICs in in the state of Oregon last year fighting the unprecedented wildfires that ravaged our state. Um, and you know, the governor um, really looked at those folks, and you know. Some of them were rewarded with, uh, with commutation if they met the certain criteria, you know, for, you know, kind of being out there on these front lines and putting their life on the line, uh, and, you know, using that training and the opportunity that they had presented to them while they were incarcerated to go out there and, and really help our state, um, combat those wildfires that ravaged our state last year. So, um, we've had deployments. We started deploying our fire crews this year, um, in April, I think April 13th was our first deployment, which is that's kind of unheard of. I mean, that's still kind of early, later mid springtime and we were already getting calls from ODF to have our crews out. Um, this last week, we were extremely busy. I think we had uh, six crews out from various institutions out already fighting fires. Um, it's just uh, the heat wave, you know, or I think we've got nine communities in the state of Oregon right now that have already, um, declared, um, uh, drought status. Um, uh, you know, burn bans going on. And so it's uh, you know, I think this year is gonna be um, a really big year, you know, and not only that, we're we're still in deal dealing with all the, the confines of the COVID restrictions. So it's uh it's very challenging times right now. But those are, you know, all of our institutions, like I said, the nine that participate in the the fire programs, those AICs are are excited and they really like being
0: part of that. Beautiful. Well, just one more topic, and I want to just touch on COVID before we we transition out. But, um, you know, another vicious circle can be someone is trying to turn their life around, but they have a criminal record now. Therefore, gaining employment can be a challenge. Are there any programs that allow um, AIC wildland firefighters to transition into agencies? Yeah, like I said, they're
1: they're, they're presented with with a certificate saying that they've went through... The um, the Oregon Department of Forestry requirements for um, the like the level one um, initial fire training, um, but if they've been out on the suppression line and they can they they use that um, with uh, with their um, employment opportunities out there, yeah, um, they like I said before there there's multiple AICS that that currently work for. These other contracting agencies that are no longer um, incarcerated that actually are employed as wildland firefighters out there. So um, it's a it's a huge employment opportunity for them. It's 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 really a kind of a feather in your cap to go through that and have that opportunity, especially if they're out and they they're actually deployed on fire where um, they're out there getting that wildland fire um, experience. Um, so yeah, that that that's a great thing for them um, to have. As part of that kind of that resume thing uh, that they had to when they go out there, um, and another thing that the Oregon Department of Corrections offers is uh, in a release packet that the ICS get when they're released, and when we go through that release packet with them, there's a paperwork in there that they can submit to their employer that um, apply allows that employer um, a tax credit for hiring um, an ex you know adult in custody, um, somebody with a criminal record. So they there's some of those incentives that already exist in Oregon for uh, to entice um, employers to, you know, give somebody a chance uh, to hire somebody that has a criminal record.
0: That's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. All right. Well, then one last topic before we go to some closing questions so I can let you go. What was the prison's experience of the last 16 months? So how did it affect, you know, how did COVID affect you running the prison and as far as the inmates themselves, or excuse me, the adults in custody themselves?
1: Everything that you, that you knew, um, and in days of, you know, daily operations, uh, everything went out the window. Um, and for me, I got the notification on March 13th, um, that we were kind of shutting down a lot of the programs, um, just because of the fear of, um, what is going on in our community. So, uh, yeah, we had to let all, you know, we, we, that day for me, um, and for, you know, our organization really changed. Um, you know, we, we suspended our treatment program. So, uh, we had to notify all of our contractors that they weren't allowed access back into our institutions. We suspended all of our visiting, um, no outside uh, contractors were able to come in, you know, our, our educational programs were shut down. Um, a lot of our, um, Things that we offer within our institutions were, they stopped that day. Um, and, you know, we had to start uh, putting protocols and safety measures into place, uh, mask learning, uh, sanitation crews uh, that were continuous 24 hours a day going around and sanitizing everything, trying to social distance, a um, limited how many AICs that we can feed in our chow halls, uh, just everything that, that businesses normally just stopped. And we had to, you know, submit uh, plans back to our agency operations center. Um, and they had to prove everything that we were doing within our side of our institutions. Um, and it was, you know, needed information uh, within short time frames. You know, hey, quick turnaround. We need to know what you're going to do on this scenario. and You know, uh, and everything uh, really became kind of a hamstring because everybody, all businesses and every hanging out in our communities, we're kind of under the same diner. So we're all fighting for the same, we all needed hand washing stations. We all need hand sanitizer. We need masks. Well, that stuff was flying off the shelf faster than it could be produced. So, um, you know, um, our AOC, um, Oregon Correctional Enterprises, started making um, masks for our AIC population. Um, And I tell you what, James, it it was a complete uh, culture shock Because on March 12th, we were conducting business one way and then on March 13th, our, our world was completely turned upside down and it it really affected all of our staff. Um, you know, our delivery systems, I mean, every protocol that you can possibly think of was impacted, you know, um, you know, like I said, no contractors coming in. So what does that look like as far as, you know, our treatment program, everything was suspended. Um, you know it affected a lot of people in a lot of different ways in our AIC population you know their their visiting was suspended um you know their programming was suspended so now we've got a lot of AICs here that were in the programming are like well are we just general population now we don't have to follow these rules anymore and so it was a it was a huge struggle and a huge culture shock um, and so a lot of conversations with our with our correctional staff and all I needed is with inside the facility, or our medical staff, our food services, physical plant. Everything changed. So it was uh the first couple months of that were uh every day uh you would get a directive first thing in the morning by that directive would change two or three times throughout the day. And so a lot of long hours. Um, you know, it was just something that we had to do. And then throw on top of that, we had wildfires uh, affecting a lot of our institutions on the west side of the state that we had evacuations going on, uh, moving, I mean, moving all of our population from institutions to other institutions. Um, so you you name it, it was, it was thrown at us in the state of Oregon um, within the last, you know, 16 months. It's been now it's kind of the new norm. Now um, if we look at it now and we kind of laugh. I mean, we're all still wearing masks every single day. I mean, we got a screening process still to this day. You to access the institution, you go through a screening process. You got to answer a series of, of questions. Um, you got to take the temperature. You got to sanitize your hands, and you know you're asked these questions before you're even granted access to the institution. So our our world, when hopefully we see the light at the end of the t- tunnel, and um, we can hopefully one day put this, um, all the COVID restrictions behind us. And then we're going to sit back and kind of, kind of laugh and chuckle about, and our day-to-day operations are, you know, a lot smoother (laughs) just because of all of the process that we've had to set into place. And, you know, used to be, you know, just for powder river, it would take us about 45 minutes to run our complete meal line, you know, and, That process takes, you know, about two and a half hours to run that same meal line. You know, the preparation and everything is still the same amount of time, but it's just getting folks through because we we try to maintain that social distancing. Say our yard times on a yard used to be um, AICs could, as long as they weren't in a work assignment or program, assignment, could access the yard. Now we've structured yard times for individual housing units because we don't want them, you know, co-mingling with the, you know, AICs that are assigned to a certain unit identifying or mingling with AICs from another housing unit, um, just because of the, we try to eliminate, um, the contamination factor. So everything, and I know I'm just kind of painting a broad paintbrush of that, just that there's been so many changes. I would take up a week's worth of time (laughs) talking about every single change that we've had to make, but you know, it's, it's been, the AIC population honestly is, uh, they've worked with it. They've been understanding, you know, because they hear, they see the news, um, you know, they watch TV, they read the newspapers, they hear, you know, they talk with their friends and family on video chats and phone calls and letters. So they know that the the threat was out in our communities because they, they were all impacted by, you know, members of their family uh, came down with it outside. Um, so they knew that threat um, and they knew um that we were doing everything that we possibly could to safeguard them because we didn't want it in inside our institutions because we knew kind of what that would look like if they got inside. Um, you know, and unfortunately you can't you can't keep that out forever. Um, I think we had our first um, case of it here inside our institution on the ASE population in December. So we we managed it for a long time, not not having to come in. Um, you know, it, it ran its course and you know, Knock on wood, we 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 haven't had a, a positive AIC um, for several months, um, which is good. You know, I mean, it shows we're we took it seriously. We did the right things for the right reasons. Um, all of our processes that we put in place um, worked, um, and that's why they're still in, in place today. You know, we've got you know a, a mask wearing policy that you have to wear a mask, you know, at all given times unless you're outside and you can maintain that six feet of social distancing that and that's the only time you can take off your mask. And so it's kind of like I said, I'm in my office right now. I'm by myself. I don't have to wear a mask. But as soon as I walk outside my office, I I don a mask from the time I walk in the facility to the time I leave. You know, unless I'm in my office by myself. Um, and it's all of our staff at AIC are, are very compliant with it. So um, yeah, it's uh, it's kind of surreal right now. I guess to think that um, someday it's going to end. We're gonna look back and be like "Eh, you know it's pretty easy to come in and out without having to you know don a mask and go through a, a screening process and get your temperature taken and you know sanitize your hands in front of somebody to just to come into work so yeah uh same with our AICs you know before they go to work assignment they gotta they gotta go through a temperature check and you know they're asked some questions um some health screening questions and they gotta sanitize their hands so And that's, that's throughout the state. I mean, all of our institutions are doing the same thing. And uh, we just, uh, I don't know. It's uh, it's kind of surreal right now to be thinking about how long it's been and it's the new norm now. I mean, we don't even think twice about it. I mean, uh, you know, I get when I pull up in the parking lot to get out of my car, I put my mask on and come to the gate. I go through the screen process. And so uh, it's going to be, it will be a a welcome site. Uh, when we don't have to do that anymore, but I think you're—it's going to be more of a. Oh, but I don't have to do that anymore.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, it's an important perspective as well, and I hope you're done soon. We're 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 coming out of it in Florida now, um, thank goodness. But um, you know, sadly, it, it's it mirrors what we saw in the in um, you know outside the prison walls, as it were, because the very things that were healing and nurturing you had to close down. It's the same here: the gyms closed, the restaurants and cafes, and all the. Social positive, you know, spaces were closed. So, you know, that's the, I think the unseen toll of this. I mean, yes, you know, there's no question that it was, it was real, you know, that the, the, the honest view is definitely it was mostly immunocompromised that really suffered from it. Um, but you know, I'm hoping now that enough people being vaccinated and you know, medical um, response to it, the treatment for it has changed where we're, they, they not, we, they are very good at treating it now that I hope that we can come out the other side and get people back into those healing programs because COVID is a tiny, tiny slice of the overall wellness pie.
1: Oh, exactly. No, hundred percent James. And you know, like I said, we, It's was unfortunate um, that we had to suspend a lot of things, uh, programs and, uh, Treatments and things like that for our, our AIC population, but um, you know our treatment centers back up and running. We we had those folks come back in and, in July um, of last year, so you know it was suspended for a brief time, um, and we realized the the impacts that that was having, um, you know, on our AIC population and and the staffing. So you know, through um, once we got all of our safety protocols in place um, and got guidance from. You know the CDC and OHA and Ocean, our agency operations center. Um, and once we had all those safety protocols in place, we were able to start opening all those things back up again. Just in a very different setting now. Um, you know, obviously we got to maintain our six feet of social distancing. Um, we can't have you know large gatherings. You know, small groups of you know ten to fifteen AICS, as long as we can maintain that social distancing, everybody dons a mask. Um, so it was suspended for a while. And, you know, obviously, you know, once we got it back up and running again, I mean, we're, we're back in full force. Um, So there's, there's still a lot of changes. I mean, every, all those protocols are still in place. uh, And it looks a whole lot different, but uh, like I said, we're, it's going to be a welcome site when we, when we do get to open back up and uh, we don't have any of those restrictions on any of this, um, you know, Especially inside our, our prisons, but it's uh, like I said, we we've made it work um, in all institutions throughout the state. Um, you know, a lot of man hours and um, trials and tribulations um, have went into it. Uh, and like I said, I, in our AIC population throughout the state has been, um, you know, um, very compliant uh, with the, with those asks because, like I said, they seen what was going on out in our communities. They were you know, in communications with their friends and family saying now yeah, it's, it's a real deal. So it, uh, it really made things go, um, a lot smoother. Um, and like I said, you throw in the wildfire evacuations, um, and gee, Christmas week, we really, <laughs> we've really had a, a struggle, you know, 2020 we're glad to see that behind us and, uh, you know, we're welcome. And then 2021, you know, we're almost halfway through the year and we're still, we're still chipping away at the, the COVID restrictions, but,
0: absolutely well i want to you know, thank you for for you know relaying that but it is important to get you know that perspective too um i want to transition to some closing questions the first one i love to ask is there a book that you love to recommend that can be related to what we've discussed today or completely unrelated
1: so there's a there's a couple books um you know and it's more towards uh, i i recommend them for anybody to read um but if you're um Especially in any type of management uh, position, or you oversee anybody, there's a there's a couple really good uh, change management books um, that we try to inspire people to read. Um, one of them is uh, is Adcar, and it's a it's a change management um, business uh, type book that uh, talks about um, how to successfully change um, the culture within inside. Um, a prison setting. And that's the book there. It's ADKAR.
0: ADKAR, okay. A-D-K-A-R. Okay. Yep. Brilliant. Yeah. And it's uh, awareness, desire,
1: knowledge, ability, and reinforcement And the book uh, gives you several examples of businesses that um, failed to change um, through time to come up with new practices and implement new ideas and new, new things and to get your staff on board to see um, the benefits of the change. Um, and the uh, the book is by uh, Jeffrey Hyatt. Yeah, and then the the next book is uh, by um, Cy Wakeman, and it's No Ego, and it's a it's another book. And um, the two books kind of contradict each other uh, because Ad Car talks about um, building the like I said, the awareness, the desire, and the knowledge, ability, and the reinforcement, and it's a change management tool, and um, use it to try to. Any scenario, um, we always say, well, did you, did you use the ADCAR model? Any type of change, uh, you work with, like for us, inside the prison setting we work with, uh, all entities, uh, whether it's our AIC population or with our staffing, uh, to try to, any change in practice that you want to uh, try to implement is, you know, in order for it to be successful, you have to people, you know, first you got to give them, uh, bring them into the conversation, you know, have that conversation of what that looks like, um, and provide, ask for feedback. And then you provide the, the, the training and the ability and the reinforcement and the knowledge. Um, and the no ego book, um, talks about how as, as managers that, um, you know, we haven't, we have an open door policy, but we don't, um, don't drive your BMW into my office, which is the bitching, moaning and whining. And, uh, present all your problems to me and then walk out and expect me to fix them all. Um, so there, are two management style books. Um, and they, they serve a purpose. Um, I, I feel within our correctional settings, especially with our, our, our managers. Um, and it's a, a communication tool to, you know, help educate them and provide them with some, some knowledge and, and, uh, guidance on how to be an accept, a successful manager which bleeds into just normal everyday conversations and we use it um that model as well and it's our AIC population some somebody comes to you with a, with an issue or problems hey all right how, how are we going to fix it you know you just going to drop the problem off and, and walk away and say here fix it no right, let's work together to you know resolve it and come up with a solution and implement it so those are a couple books that I'd recommend
0: Brilliant. All right, what about a movie and or a documentary?
1: There's an Edward Norton movie that I'm trying to think of. uh gosh, it's a it's a prison movie. Um,
0: oh, you're thinking of American History X? Yeah, American History X.
1: Yes, that that movie. Um, you know that that's one that kind of gives you a kind of gives you a little insight of you know I guess the gang mentality. Um, they actually um, showed that movie. Um, when I was going through NEO or I remember uh, one of our captains um, at snake river, um, it was for our, uh, security threat management um, recommended that movie to us. we we'll watched
0: it. I was like, wow, that's
1: um, yeah. American history. x that's, that's the one.
0: Very powerful film. And what about documentary? Any of those that resonated with you?
1: Not, not that's coming to the,
0: yeah, I know, I know the vice, the vice episode on Bastoy. I think it was, it was Bastoy, wasn't it? Um, that was a really good one. So, for people listening, and if they haven't seen that, if you Google Bastoy Vice, it should bring up the documentary. But yeah, Tom's work and um, is it Holden Prison? I think is the other one they yeah. feature. Yeah, I Brilliant. would say
1: anything that. Oh, excuse me. Sorry. No, please. I would say um, as far as the documentary pieces, anything that um, the Amend program has to offer, or anything with uh, like you're saying with the Norwegian prison system or the Oregon way, uh, any of those. I know that um, obviously we don't have necessarily a documentary about the Oregon way, but um, we have a lot of uh, interesting YouTube videos out there, um, success stories about um, the Oregon way uh, and what we do within kind of the um, institutions. You know, we've had a lot of uh, like suicide awareness walks um, that uh, a lot of the institutions partake in. um, And those are all, Um, little clips on YouTube. So there's a lot of information out there about the Royal Department of Corrections. But yeah, as far as uh, some of the documentaries, um, you know, uh, Cyrus and his team in Dallas with the amend program, those are really, really good um, videos to watch um, to talk about, like I said, for myself, going in through that with uh, the the Norwegian uh, prison system and being introduced to Tom and going through that contact officer training. That's very, very useful um, information. Um, so yeah, if I would say if there was anything out there um, that is kind of inspiring would be uh, like the YouTube videos type in Oregon Department of Corrections and YouTube. There's a lot of inspirational videos about us and some of the things that we've done um, inside of our institutions. And then also um, the amend uh, folks, a lot of good information um, talking about uh, you know, prison reform and Navira project, and you know, obviously the Norwegian uh, correctional uh, system. Very good information out there.
0: Brilliant. All right. Well, next question: Is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world?
1: You know, I I think uh, I do I I would like to throw out Mark Newth, Uh Mister uh, Nuth, is our uh, Institution administrator. Um, he was, a uh, he's, he came from uh, the Massachusetts prison system, uh, worked over, uh, in the Massachusetts system for, I want to say, 27 years. Um, it was 20 plus, 23 or 27. They came over to the Oregon department of corrections and was hired at Snake River correctional institution back in, I want to say, uh, 2003, 2004, uh, maybe even a little later, maybe like 2007. But anyway, he's been, I think with our department for around 15 years. So yeah, about 2005 or six, maybe seven. He was hired as an assistant su- um, assistant superintendent at Snake River and um, worked his way up to the superintendent there. Uh, I think he was a, the superintendent at Snake River for uh, right around 10 years. And he's been um, the East side administrator uh, for about four years. And then, um, with some some retirements and uh, things like that, uh, he was our he's our only institution administrator up until um, a couple uh, weeks ago when they filled the West Side position. But Mark Nuth is uh, he's very inspiring. He's the one that uh, that um, came up with the the AdCar book um, that all the managers had to had to read, and that's uh, that's his biggest um, um, business model, um, and that's something that, like I said. I really enjoy the book. It's something that that I use um, on uh, all of our, you know, our new managers within the department um, in the correctional series and our, our lieutenants and getting them on board with that uh, that change management system. I think Mark would be uh, very uh, inspirational to talk about. Uh, you know, I'm sorry, I get a bug. <laughs> anyway, uh, to talk about. Um, you know whether it's prison reform or uh, police reform. He was involved in. Uh, he did a tour back um, back east. Um, they did uh, last year. It was pre-COVID. Um, they went and did a tour um, with a, our one of our BHS administrators, um, Don El Meyer, and some of our um, behavioral health specialists uh, went back east, and uh, they um, went and seen firsthand the. <clears throat> medically assisted therapy with the suboxone and how that's administrated in some of the prisons back East. And we're actually doing that in the state of Oregon now, Powder river that's something that we're just now, um, we're entertaining. Uh, we just got a QMHP, a qualified mental health professional that we're, that we're recruiting for right now to, um, offer our treatment uh, program to AICs that, um, would have been excluded from participating in that program if they um, had a certain level of behavioral um, health service requirements. Well, now we're going to have one of those full time positions here that's going to actually open up our treatment to a lot more AICs within the custody of the state of Oregon. Mark has been very instrumental on getting a lot of those programs and, and really fighting for the position, especially for me in Powder River. Um, we had a conversation with Mark. and. And we, you know, we kind of really pushed for it and he was able to, between him and Donnell was able to get a position here. So that's something that we're extremely excited about. We're opening the doors more um, and throwing out a bigger net um, to incorporate a lot more AICs that need the treatment. But, you know, unfortunately without a position, we weren't able to provide that for them. So now we're able to get that. And uh, Mark actually uh, contacted me here about him. I lose track of time, but probably within the last couple of months, and talked to me about the um the MAT, the MAT program, which is that uh, medically assisted treatment that they use with the Suboxone. And, uh, you know, we're actually, we're looking at doing that here. Um, you know, obviously there's a need for it. We're, and I fully support it because we're a treatment facility. I mean, what, what a better place to have that, that they're going through the treatment and they're also getting treated for, you know, an illness that they have. Um, you know, we got a couple of institutions that that's already in practice going on, and uh, so yeah, there's a lot of things that I think Mark would be. Um, you know, I think he'd really be a good host and a wealth of information. Um, you know, he's like I said, been with our department, and he's you know came from uh, a department back east, and you know he's worked in all levels. You know, he came up through the security ranks, and he's been you know now on the administration side for for several years, so. Very instrumental, um, you know, and a person of influence. Uh, be,
0: yeah, brilliant. Yeah, sounds like a great suggestion. So, thank you. Um, right, the last question before we make sure where people can find you if they want to reach out. What do you do to decompress? <laughs> so, uh,
1: I, luckily for me, um, I I have a a, a long commute. Um, you know, I I commute an hour and a half one way to work. So, my decompress is. You know, I gear up on the way to work, um, thinking about the day for an hour and a half in my vehicle before I get to work. And then uh, on my drive home, I I think about the day and I do a lot of resonating um, of just things that happen throughout the day and, you know, meetings that come up and things like that. Um, So I have a very good I got a lot of time to sit in my car and uh, and think about, you know, what resonate on the day. Um, and that's my decompression. Um, when I, uh, when I worked at snake river, um, I, I lifted weights. I mean, I, I, I hit the gym. I had a, a couple of really good workout partners. Um, and we bid, we tried to always bid the same shift and the same days off. So when we left work, um, we would be at the gym together At you know, when we were, whatever shift it was, it was right after work. Um, and we'd, we'd lift weights and we would try not to talk about work, you know, I mean, the first, you know, 20 minutes of your, um, work routine, your workout, you, you kind of talk about working and after that you it talked into, you know, what you, what you did the day before and, you know, what you're going to do when you get home and things like that. So I'd say that decompression for me for the first 16 years of my career was, um, you know, I had a support system at work and we went out and we, we lifted weights and, you know, you had a good camaraderie system. Um, and then for me now, um, I, I've got a long commute where I've got a lot of time to sit and think. And by the time I get home, I have worries. And the day, there's nothing within my day. I don't take anything home with me. Um, I try to resonate that with staff. Um, you know, we talk about um, we got a good uh, peer support in ESS. But for me, that's how I decompress is I've, I've, got, a, I've got a long commute
0: beautiful i can relate to that i've driven usually about an hour and 15 for most of my career so yeah it definitely is good as long as you can as long as you can keep your eyes open after the shift sometimes 24 hours or 48 hours and <laughs> you're just trying to stay awake not decompress um all right so then you know obviously this has been a you know a fascinating conversation it's got to be people out there listening whether they're in corrections or law enforcement or maybe neither um that are curious and maybe want to learn more so Um, you know, as I mentioned, because your position, I'm sure you're not extremely visible on social media, but where can people reach out to you? What's the best place?
1: So a contact uh, number for me at Powder River Correctional Facility would be uh, 541-523-6680. And that's our general uh, information line. And um, you can leave a message and someone will get back with you and if you want to speak with me personally, then um I'll do everything I can to make contact with you.
0: Brilliant. As I mentioned, you know, it's it's a lot <laughs> you have to be a lot less visible and, and accessible, and I totally understand that. So thank you for the phone number. Um so I just want to say thank you for this whole conversation. Um, you know, it it really does enthuse me. I'm very optimistic that there are models in certain countries that have proven very successful with, you know, what one could argue, more humane ways of looking at incarceration and rehabilitation. Um, so, you know, whether it's, you know, yourself or people from Amend or, or Tom, um, the more stories that we hear that this is really working, this is a successful model, I think the more, you know, inspired and optimistic other people will have. So I just want to say thank you so much for being so generous and giving me an hour and a half of your time today.
1: I, James I really appreciate the, the conversation myself um, you know I'm more than happy to have a conversation with with, with folks so they want to hit me up if I have the time i I, I like telling our story um, you know I, I like giving people a perspective from what it's like um, boots on the ground you know not reading stuff in the newspaper you know folks want to reach out to me um, just have a, a brief conversation if I've got the time i will I will do everything in my power to reach back out to folks because i think telling our story from inside our institutions um from our from a whether it's an aic perspective or from the staff uh perspective um really like i said paints that picture of what really goes on inside of our institutions and we're doing a lot of great things in the state of oregon and you know i'm just very very blessed to be a part of the organization that is embraced the change and identified that we really need to change the way we do business. And we're on an inflammation stage. We're, we're really focusing on our recidivism rate um, programs that we're offering to our AICs, um, our staff wellness, uh, putting our staff wellness at the forefront. You know, we're looking at uh, everything around staff wellness. Eight dimensions of the staff wellness, our mandatory overtime, um, you know, reconnecting our staff on the different shifts with the, uh, with their families. Um, you know, really trying to take the best interest of our staff at heart, um, which in turn really takes the best interest of our ACs. You know, anything that we can do to make things normal and, and humanized within our correctional facilities um, is a benefit not only to our staff that work here um, and the ARCs that are um, in our care and custody, but also goes back out into our communities every single day because our, our staff are happier and we're... Um, our AICs are releasing with, uh, with more tools in their toolbox to be successful.